1: Mark Twain famously told us that it's often easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And the American people are often fooled into getting confused about government deficits. The word itself sounds like a problem.
2: Yes. Well, boy, I wish I believed in the tooth fairy. I wish I believed that Elvis still lived. And I wish you could scoff at government debt. Um, I've got a historical question. Was Alexander Hamilton a fool?
3: Hey, everybody, and welcome to That's Debatable, a television series brought to you by Bloomberg and by Intelligence Squared. I'm your host and your debate referee, John Donvan. And today we have four economic powerhouses who will be debating for and against this resolution, Stop Worrying About National Deficits. I want to say thank you to our sponsor, IBM, for helping to make all of this possible. So let's meet our debaters. First, I want to welcome the team arguing in favor of the resolution, stop worrying about national deficits. He is an economist and a professor of public affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. James Galbraith is the author of many books, including... Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know. He's debated with us before, so I want to say to you, James, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. Thank you. And James's partner is an economist and leading authority on modern monetary theory. Stephanie Kelton is the author of The Deficit Myth, and I can see by that title that that's going to be central to the debate where we're going. So thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Thank you. And now let's meet the team arguing against the resolution. Stop worrying about the national deficit. They're saying worry. A former White House economic director of economic policy and the author of The Price of Prosterity, Todd Buchholz. Todd, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Good to be with you. Thank you. And your partner is Otmar Ising, a former chief economist and member of the central board of the European Central Bank. Joining us from Germany, where it's approaching midnight Thank you for staying up, and thank you uh, so much, Otmar, for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, now we go on to round one. Round one is composed of opening statements from each debater in turn. Those statements will be four minutes each. They're uninterrupted. Our resolution, one final time, is stop worrying about national deficits. And first up to speak for the resolution here is James Galbraith.
4: Thank you very much. And let me first express my thanks to the host for the exquisite timing of this debate. The injunction, stop worrying about budget deficits, forces a question. When exactly did the worry start? Uh, we've just come through four years when no one in power in America has expressed the slightest concern about national deficits, and an amazing year when we ran a budget deficit of $3.3 trillion without the slightest bad effect on interest rates, the economy, or public morals. So why now? A cynic would suggest that the answer is clear. America just held an election. A Democrat won it. Only this and nothing else has changed. Our task, Professor Kelton's and mine, is to show that this is not sufficient reason to disregard 40 years of solid evidence and sound economic theory. I will address the evidence. She will explain the theory. Our distinguished adversary, Mr. Buchholz, who in March called for a the government to pass out $500 in debit cards to every American so that they could go spend it and have some fun, uh, today is worried about deficits. He wrote last month that the, to the rest of us, and the U.S. and many of its G7 cohort look not just ill, but veering towards broke. I checked the dictionary. Broke is a synonym for insolvent. Yet our distinguished adversary, Dr. Issing, wrote just this month, to be sure, advocates of MMT are technically correct when they point out that no, any country able to pay its debts in its own currency cannot become insolvent, because there is no limit to the sums of money that it can create. I thank Dr. Issing for this very clear statement of technical economics, and Dr. Kelton and I will take it as decided on a three-to-one vote, that point that the United States or similar countries cannot go broke or insolvent. For what other reasons might one worry? Typically, deficit worriers name three, interest rates, inflation, and the exchange rate. Do large national deficits drive up interest rates in countries that pay debts in their own uh, currency? Obviously not. Japan has a national debt twice GDP, and interest rate on government debt that's negative. In France, it's almost 100%. The interest rate is, again, negative. In the United States, uh, the 20-year constant maturity rate, treasury rate was about 1.4 percent just now, and the uh, 10-year rate is below 0.9 percent, which is an even better deal than Pope Julius got from Michelangelo for the Sistine Chapel. And those are market rates. Efficient markets theory tells us that they reflect the expectation of inflation over 10 or 20 years to come. That expectation could be wrong, but it is not open to economists who purport to believe in efficient markets uh, to question it. What about the dollar? Sure, the dollar might decline some in the years ahead. If so, goods Americans buy will be more expensive, American jobs will be more plentiful, and and they will sell better on world markets. That's an internal matter. Could the dollar collapse? The thought is absurd. America's worries are unemployment, climate change, COVID-19, inequality, precarity, the polarization of our society, militarism, the threat of wars. America's goals are full employment, balanced growth, and reasonable price stability. Those are written into law. As Keynes said, anything we can actually do, we can afford. If you haven't started worrying about deficits, don't start. If you have started, stop. Vote for sound economics and for your mental
3: health. Thank you, James Galbraith. Our next debater will be speaking against the resolution. Please welcome Atmar Ising.
5: It's my pleasure to be invited to this interesting debate. The whole world has been hit by the pandemic. All countries are running high deficits and spending huge amounts of money to limit the severity of the downturn. However, beyond this special case, the idea that deficits don't matter at all has become popular with a number of politicians and even on the fringes of the economics profession. To a large extent, the public debt figures of industrialized countries today are coming close, fairly close to the levels reached after World War II. However, these already frightening figures are only the tip of the iceberg. The greater part of the public debt is not visible. In Germany, for example, the official figure for the ratio of public debt to gross domestic product is now 72 percent. If you add the obligations for future social spending from pensions to healthcare, the number rises to a staggering over 400 percent. Similar ratios apply to many other countries. A person born into one of these societies arrives with a heavy load to bear. On top of all, the future challenges arising from climate change or aging populations. High public debt implies limits to future expenditures and once interest rates rise, the house of cards will collapse. The countries with the biggest current fiscal problems are those that used to suffer from inflation, high interest rates and repeated devaluations as long as they had their own currency.
3: Tomorrow, I'm sorry, I I have to jump in because your time is up, but thank you very much. Okay, next up with an opening statement in support of the motion to stop worrying about national deficits, here is Stephanie Kelton. Stephanie.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you to to Dr. Galbraith and to our distinguished uh, debate partners. Uh, This is going to be, I think, a lot of fun. So I would like to start with a a quote from the great American humorist Mark Twain. Mark Twain famously quipped that it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I think we're going to hear a lot over the course of the next hour that just ain't so. Okay. And I want to try to take this opportunity to fix some of the broken thinking. That's what Dr. Galbraith and I are here to do is to fix some of the broken ways in which we think about and dialogue about public finances, about the government deficit and the national debt. And what I want to present you with first are some unassailable facts. Let's start with what we know for sure. First, the federal government is nothing like a household. And as soon as we begin to start to think of the federal government's finances as akin to our own, that the government faces or ought to face the same kind of constraints that you and I face or that a private business faces or even that state and local governments face, we're gonna go down the wrong track. The federal government is nothing like a household. It shouldn't run its budget the way that you and I run our budgets. If it tries to do so, it almost always ends badly for the economy. It will drive the economy into recession. Governments aren't like households because governments issue the currency. And households are what we want to think of as users of the currency. So I want you to think of a very hard line that separates what the federal government can do with its budget, its spending power, and what the rest of us can do. We play by a different set of rules. That's the first important point. The second important truth is that every deficit is good for someone. The deficit is just the difference between two numbers. The first number is how many dollars the government is spending into the economy each year, and the other number is how many dollars the government is subtracting back out, mostly by taxing us. So a deficit means the government is adding more dollars to our economy than it subtracts away, which means that someone is getting a surplus. So in the same way that the number six becomes a nine when you flip it around, the government's deficit becomes a financial surplus when you turn it around and look at it from the vantage point of our economy as a whole. So their deficits are our financial surpluses. If you like the government deficit works to blow financial resources, dollars, and government bonds Those are financial assets that show up on our balance sheets. They become part of our wealth. They're part of our savings. When the government eliminates deficits, balances its budget, or moves it into surplus, then it's operating its budget like a vacuum. It's hoovering those dollars away from the rest of us, and that reduces our wealth. So think about whether you want the government to be running deficits, which produce your surpluses, or whether you'd prefer them to hoover away some of the financial assets that you hold.
3: We're in the middle of an opening statement from Stephanie Kelton, who is arguing in favor of the resolution, stop worrying about national deficits. More debate coming up from Intelligence Squared U.S. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan, and here is Stephanie Kelton making her final point in favor of the resolution, stop worrying about national deficits.
1: The third truth is that deficits can be too big, and inflation can be evidence of a deficit that's gotten too big. But deficits can also be too small. And evidence of a deficit that is too small is unemployment. That's what we have today. Let's worry about the unemployment and the depressed economy, not the government deficit.
3: Thank you very much, Stephanie Kelton. And our final opening statement comes from Todd Buchholz. Todd, the floor is yours.
2: Yes. Well, boy, I wish I believed in the tooth fairy. I wish I believed that Elvis still lived. And I wish you could scoff at government debt. Um, I've got a historical question. Was Alexander Hamilton a fool? Alexander Hamilton's Words are spoken by schoolchildren around the world who've enjoyed the Broadway musical. And in that musical, they learn that Alexander Hamilton had the federal government absorb the debt of the states and pay it off. I don't think Alexander Hamilton is a fool. I do think we are confronting a situation where the next 10 years, Social Security and Medicare in the U.S., those trust funds will go dry and there will be automatic spending cuts if nothing is done. Um, uh, Stephanie has has uh, presented with to us some of the old canards. We owe it to ourselves. That's nonsense. One-third of U.S. debt is in the hands of foreigners, including $1 trillion to the Chinese. The second canard is that it's an asset for us. Well, that's a fallacy. Those people who issue, who buy bonds, are not the exact same people uh, who buy the bonds. It's not an even match. The motto or the mascot of modern monetary theory should not be a dollar bill. It should be earplugs. Because the modern monetary theorists refuse to listen to 2,000 years of history. Let's go back. Ancient Greece. City-states went bankrupt lending to the Temple of Delos. French Revolution. Louis XVI loses his head. Why? Because he spent too much money. All right, that's old history. Let's go to modern times. Chile, early 1970s. Inflation. Brazil and Argentina in the 2000s, Bolivia in the 1980s. Okay, they encountered inflation, depreciation, wages fell 40%. Our colleagues say they're worried about everyday people. How about Britain, the 1970s? How could you forget that in the 1970s, Britain begged the IMF for the biggest bailout to date? And James Callahan the Labour Prime Minister of Britain, explained to the MMT theorists of the day, the predecessors to Dr. Kelton and Dr. Galbraith, we cannot in all candor do what you ask. Now, perhaps our colleagues here are like Albert Einstein, a lonely Swiss clerk working by himself, somehow coming up with a magical way that breaks, shatters ideas about space and time. You may decide today whether they are the Einsteins of our day, But in the meantime, I'd suggest vote to be concerned about the deficit and the debt. Vote because our lives depend on it and hold on to your wallet.
3: Thank you, uh, Todd Bockels. And that concludes the first round of this debate. And that is the round of our opening statements. So what is your response to their their basic argument that it might look okay now, but uh, eventually reality will catch up with reality?
4: Well, if you're going to compare the United States and say, well, we're just like Argentina or just like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, essentially you're on very weak uh, and shaky ground. Those countries borrow in the currency that they do not control, mostly in U.S. dollars. Their exports have to pay for those interest payments. Those are mostly in commodity prices that are set on world markets that they don't control very well. Uh, this is not the United States. This is not Europe. This is not Japan, and this is not the People's Republic of China, for that matter. So when we're talking about the countries that are the prominent members of the world economic community, the ones that set the tone, they are countries that we call financially sovereign. What they do is they issue cur- debts in their own currency. And as uh, Dr. Issing said very clearly, that means they cannot go broke. They cannot run out of, their, of the means to pay their debts. It's an accounting matter. That's a point of fact. Uh, it is a point which was uh, underlined just a, a day or so ago by uh, Madame Lagarde, the, the current president of the European Central Bank. The United States does not need to renegotiate its debt. The Constitution actually states that the United States debt shall not be questioned. It will be paid as a matter of not of our most basic law going back to 1865. Uh, so, there we are. Uh, the us simply is not in a position that can be compared to
3: Argentina, Venezuela, or Zimbabwe. Uh, Todd, you wanted to jump in, so go for it.
2: Yes, so so Jamie, of course, tries to put in his earplugs and swat away the examples, but he ignored Britain in the 1970s. isn't that? A G7 country? He ignores Sweden? Is that not an advanced country? He ignores Canada? And they fell into terrible problems where Sweden's debt to GDP ratio doubled during the 1990s and they had to do something about it. So this canard, this fiction that if you're a big country, you're insulated, that's simply not true.
1: So there aren't currency issuing countries that have had difficulties with debt. That's just simply not the case. Canada has not had a debt crisis. Sweden did not have a debt crisis. You have countries that want to manage their exchange rates. That's, and not, we'll move that's
2: simply not and we'll true. And move
1: interest rates. Let's talk about Britain. When the Callahan and the, ha- and the uh, Haley government went to the IMF and what that was about, That was a political stunt. Let's call it what it was. The government was not broke. The government was not running out of money. The British government never needs to go to anyone to get the British pound because the British pound can only come from the British government as the issuer of the currency. It was a political stunt where the government had drunk the Kool-Aid and they wanted to be able to say to the British people, we're out of money, we can't afford social programs, a social contract. So they went to the IMF, they negotiated a loan got a standing facility for several billion dollars, and guess what? They never tapped the facility. They never spent one pence from that. Does that tell you something? It tells me the government didn't need the money in the first place. Why on earth would you take out a loan if you were desperate and going broke and then never tap the facility? It was a political stunt. Uh,
5: it was uh, a convent of the Labour Party in Blackpool. when Callahan mentioned that the idea that we can get out of unemployment by spending more money and inflation. This time has gone. We have experienced that this was a mistake. Stagflation was the consequence. And I should be cautious to comment on the US. But may I remind you, when the US spent so much money running high deficits to finance the Vietnam War, It has exported inflation to the rest of the world. Of course, inflation in the US didn't happen, but it was exported to the world. And as a consequence, the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates uh, broke
2: down. It was your currency, but our problem. So Stephanie had had called Britain going to the IMF a political stunt. Very odd that the Labour Party, which was pro-union and dominated by the unions, would have pulled off such a stunt in the name of what she says is right-wing monetarism. That's ridiculous. I'd like to ask her about the Carter bonds. In the 1970s, Jimmy Carter, because the U.S. was incapable of successfully selling U.S. treasuries, Jimmy Carter designated foreign bonds, that is, he issued bonds in Deutschmark and Swiss francs because bondholders in the U.S. had lost half of the value of their bonds during the inflation of the 1970s.
3: All right. Thank you. I want to now go bring you, our audience, into the conversation. And to kick this off, we're going to bring in actually our global audience. And by that, I mean, over the last few weeks, we've been asking people around the world to submit the way they would argue on this debate, what their their point is, which side they're on, and why they're on that side. And now, having gathered all of those arguments together, uh, we are using artificial intelligence to help us understand what matters to this global audience, what arguments and ideas they thought were most important. So we have turned to IBM Watson, which uses artificial intelligence to actually look at and scale public opinion as it's been submitted to us. And then it uses its ability to process natural language to map out the themes and the key points across more than 1,000 submissions that we received. So let's take a look at how that process works. First, people around the world submit their arguments online. Then, the AI assesses the quality of the arguments, filtering out any irrelevant submissions, and sorting the remaining arguments into for and against. Next, the technology identifies the recurring key points, ranking them based on their quality and their frequency. Finally, the AI creates a coherent narrative of the strongest and most prevalent points for both sides of the debate. Okay, and now we get to hear what the results were. This is a selection of key points and arguments that our global audience, again, more than a thousand people around the world, thought were most important on this topic. Let's
6: listen in. Hello. Hello. The following analysis used AI models to identify the critical key points made by each site on the motion, we should stop worrying about national deficits. 50% thought we should stop worrying about national deficits, with 17% of those arguing that national deficits have no direct negative impact on the economy. One argument said a high deficit does not mean a high risk of default, financial institutions are strong, and productivity is increasing, thus the danger of an economic fallout is minimal. Another key point for the motion was that to an extent, the national debt allows financial growth. One argument said that spending money stimulates the economy, which will then bring the government money and lower the deficit. People also think spending into a higher deficit is acceptable during a health crisis. The remaining 50% were against the motion, with 17% of submissions arguing that a rising deficit can lead to inflation and cripple the economy. One argument said national deficits fundamentally weaken a nation's economy and must be arbitrated to achieve a balanced resolution. Another key point against the motion was that national debt burdens future generations. One argument said, we cannot pretend that we have money that we don't have. It's disrespectful to younger generations to run up the national deficit. People also said that high public debt is dangerous. While the world is so unstable with politics, wars, prevalent racism and extremism, also having high national deficits around the world, will cause more instability. Please visit the website to see more results. Good luck to the human debaters.
3: All right, so we heard some of the arguments that the global audience is making, uh, actually we've touched on already. And, um... And we see that some of the dividing lines are quite similar to the, conver- to the dividing lines in this conversation. Um, but th- there was one, one point made that we haven't brought to, and that's the social impact of deficits. Um, people were mentioning things like global instability and things like war and extremism. Uh, to the team that's arguing against the resolution, I- I'll come to you, Atmar, uh, on this one. Are deficits a threat to global security? We're not just now talking about the markets, but actually to to global security overall.
5: James has made such a convincing argument for an independent central bank controlling the money supply. And on the international side, I think we need stability in international relations. There are so many risks coming from geopolitics, and uh, this is not a background against which uh, governments should uh, irresponsibly spend money. Uh, I think the trust, for example, in the dollar as a, a dominant currency of the world uh, is based on the future stability of the currency. So I think a country like the US is the least one to risk the stability of its currency. And I would suppose that if a new U.S. government, and including the Fed, would explain that they would apply MMT policies, the dollar would lose its leading position in the world because people would be afraid that in the future their investment in U.S. dollars would not be safe enough. Um, Stephanie,
3: would you like to respond to that?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, Thank you. So I keep hearing this bizarre discussion about the central bank being forced or cajoled or asked to do something to aid and assist government spending. That somehow what we're talking about is the capacity of the government to run deficits being somehow dependent upon the central bank's acquiescence in all of this, that it has to give up some independence. Nobody has said any such thing. What I described with respect to the CARES Act is the way that governments always spend. The government decides what it wants to spend, and the Fed is the government's bank. The Fed carries out all payments that are authorized by Congress on behalf of Treasury, always. It doesn't say no to the government. It can't. It has to clear the payments. What the Fed has independence to do is to set the price at which Congress will access those funds. Now, think back to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan ran massive deficits. He didn't have a friendly Federal Reserve chairman holding interest rates near zero to accommodate all of this. He had Paul Volcker, and interest rates were double digits. They were almost 16% when Reagan was president. They never got below 7%. So a very high interest rate environment that did not stop Ronald Reagan from running massive deficits with two huge tax cuts and a huge buildup in the military that almost tripled the national debt. So you don't have to have the Fed behaving in a certain way to allow Congress to do what Congress can do. Republicans do it all the time. They increase the deficit for tax cuts and wars. And the rest of the time the deficit increases is because the economy goes into recession. Those are the big drivers.
2: Well, look, I mean, with all due respect, I think Stephanie is running away from her own writings. But putting that aside, the U.S. dollar today is the world's reserve currency. But you don't choose to be the reserve currency of the world. The world chooses you depending on
3: your behavior. Let's bring in James Galbraith. James?
4: Yeah, if you're worried about the standard of living of our children and grandchildren, it's a good thing to worry about. And the way to improve it is to improve the quality of life now, to build back a better America, a better world, to deal with climate change, to provide the the, the parents with, with jobs that provide them with adequate incomes, to provide the children with the capacity for education, to provide the whole population with health care, to deal with the pandemic. Uh, simply saving money on the government accounts is not going to improve the quality of life for anybody. In fact, it is going to make it harder and more difficult to improve the quality of life. So yes, we should be worried about our children. We should be worried about what what, what we're doing for them, not what we're not doing for them by not getting involved in tackling the problems that we actually have.
3: I want to, Todd and Atmar, I want to bring in, since you brought up a good deal of history uh, throughout the conversation, we have an audience member also bringing in some history. I'll take his question to you. Uh, It's from Earl Stalin, who asks, is there a case to be made that the government can and should use greenbacks and print currency, as Lincoln did, to fund the Civil War and use that currency to pay for new goods and services without creating debt and to create a strong and more stable economy. In a sense, I think the core of that question is it embraces the argument that your opponents are making, but they're going all the way back to Lincoln for it. Maybe as the American on the team, Todd, you would like to take that one on?
2: Well, I I think it does bring us back to the idea that um, the government can print money. And of course, uh, back in the 1860s, you had, uh, it was pre Independent central bank. It was pre Federal Reserve Board. Uh, and you did have different independent private banks that were able to issue their own currency. So it was a very difficult or very different situation. Um, look, I, as I, my first words on this program were in a pandemic, we should be spending money. Nobody disagrees with that. You know, Jamie, I'm sure, is sincerely worried about the unemployment rate as we all are at 6.9%. That is far too high. But let's just scroll back February of 2020, before the pandemic hit, the U.S. unemployment rate was only 3.5%. The lowest I'd ever seen in my lifetime, Jamie had ever seen in his lifetime, or Stephanie or Otmar. So I don't think we should go into this program and say that MMT, or this story about debts, is one that's solely appropriate during pandemic. We have to ask, when an economy is doing well, are you willing to give up fiscal discipline? And I think that's a very dangerous bet for common, everyday people.
3: This is round two, which features audience questions compiled by IBM Watson around the resolution, stop worrying about the national deficit. We'll finish up and head into closing statements right after the break. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Our two teams of debaters answer questions from our audience in response to the resolution, stop worrying about national deficits. Up next, we hear from Stephanie Kelton.
1: I, I think that, that this is exactly compatible with what Jamie and I are arguing. I think that we've found some agreement here that in the current moment, we recognize that the economy needs the fiscal support that has been provided. And I will make the case, and I think Jamie as well, that we aren't doing enough that in spite of the three plus trillion dollar deficit we have today, it is still too small. Congress needs to do more to provide fiscal support to this economy as a bridge to the other side of the pandemic. And beyond that, recovery and investment in the economy. So at what point does it become appropriate for the government to withdraw some fiscal support? That's the question. And I think we're having the right conversation. We're looking at the real economy. It's sending us a signal. Count the number of people in the unemployment line. How many many people remain unemployed will give you a pretty good idea of how Long, we need to continue the fiscal support and when it will be safe for Congress to begin to withdraw fiscal support. No one is saying keep deficits at three or five trillion in perpetuity. We're saying recognize the important role the federal government can play using its budget to sustain incomes, to keep families whole, to uh, keep businesses. Uh, from going under, to keep people from losing their homes, provide a bridge to the other side. And the deficit is needed now. It's too small. And we're going to need it for some time to come.
2: Uh, I, I don't think anyone has made the point I'd like to make now, which is that fighting deficits and debt can actually help the economy and create more jobs. Let's go back to the 1990s. During that decade, The U.S. economy created nearly 20 million net new jobs. Why? President Clinton, a Democrat, and Republicans in Congress got together and agreed to cut spending. The deficit went down. Now, during this period, the Federal Reserve Board did not change interest rates. The inflation rate did not change, but interest rates fell Market interest rates, interest rates for borrowers, for home buyers, for car buyers, for businesses, those rates fell, which meant we had a burst of investment and nearly 20 million net new jobs were created. So I'm thankful that a Democratic administration and a Republican administration in the 1990s had the sense to jettison any emerging ideas of MMT and instead accept principles that go back 2,500 years.
4: You know, we do have experience with full employment policy in this country. We drove unemployment down to zero in the Second World War, kept inflation under control. We drove unemployment down very far, below 4% in the late 1990s, and there was no revival of inflation. We drove unemployment down below 4% in the last few years without any revival of inflation. So it is clearly possible to do it, and it is clearly possible in the context of the United States. What we did in 2020 when we were hit with the pandemic was utterly remarkable. Uh, We Basically, in the United States, we poured... Two, over $2 trillion into the economy, over 10% of our national income, to support people's income, to ke- replace their lost wages, to keep them in their homes. We're running out of that money now. We need to put some more in. It's as simple as that. To say we can't do it for some reason that wasn't apparent seven months ago is uh, is, is a proposition which has no foundation in any in any reality that we're currently facing. What is the reality is that people's debts are continuing to pile up, their mortgages, their rent, their utility bills. Their incomes are not keeping pace. Their jobs have not come back. And we need to be in a position one way or another to get them through this so that the economy can, in fact, recover.
3: And while our resolution is about the national debt, there's a question from Walter Chen, who's in the audience, and it goes like this. If public debt does not matter, what about personal and corporate debt? Could government buy all personal and corporate debt? Then it's everybody happily ever after. And I want to take that to Stephanie, because I I think it sounds like a challenge to your side, and I think it's a little bit red meat for your opponents,
1: so yes, you're right. I, they're very different, right? It, when the federal government issues a bond, it is making a promise to the bondholder. And the promise is in the future, that bond will turn back into currency right? I will pay that bond off by giving you U.S. dollars, which can only come from me, the federal government of the United States of America. So the government is the issuer of both of these financial instruments. It is the issuer of the currency, and it is the issuer of this debt instrument that we call a government bond, okay? So is the risk different when a private company borrows and takes on debt? Of course, if GM issues bonds, if IBM issues bonds, it is raising money. And now it's on the hook to pay back what? U.S. dollars. But where do these companies get U.S. dollars? Well, from earnings, right? They have to get the currency from somewhere in order to be able to make good on the debt service and and to pay the debt. And so it's a completely different, uh, there are completely different risk factors associated with these things.
2: Uh, Comparing personal debt, to government debt. Here's a big difference. If your relative, if your father is a spendthrift and spends all of his money and goes deep into debt and then dies, you don't get stuck with that debt. The American legal system says the debt dies with dear old broke dad. But when the government spends money, it goes on forever as debt and new generations inherit that debt. So in that sense, Public debt is far more far more dangerous than personal debt because it's passed on to innocents generations to come.
3: Let's stay with this point, and I'll move on to another question because I can see you, Stephanie, dying to ant- to respond to this. And I think that is a question that a lot of people will have: is the generational impact?
1: No, the 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 bonds that we're talking about are going to become the assets to people in the next generation and i think mr buckhold said earlier and the and the point is a correct one that it is always a distributional question you cannot burden an entire generation with government bonds, with assets, with wealth that they inherit. What does happen is that in the future, the future will be populated. Some of the people in the future will be taxpayers and some of the future people in the future will be bondholders. And so there is a distributional issue, right? Who receives the interest on those bonds? Who holds them as part of their wealth in their portfolios? There can be different people, but for sure, the next generation will inherit a portion of those Government securities and they will be part of their net financial wealth.
5: Stephanie, this is very strange hearing from you. The bonds are mostly bought by rich people and the burden of taxes, etc., has to be borne by partly also the poor people. So the stronger, the higher public debt and the more bonds are issued the more inequality is created by this
3: instrument. All right, that concludes the second round of our debate, the conversation round. And I want to thank you all for conducting that very civilly. And here's where we are. We are about to hear closing statements from each debater. They will be brief. They will be two minutes each. And this is their last chance to try to persuade you to vote for their side. Remember, right after they've uh, made these arguments, you will be asked to vote for the second time and... It's your votes that will decide our winner. So let's move on to round three, closing statements. And here to make her statement in support of the motion, Stop Worrying About the National Deficit, is Stephanie Kelton.
1: Thank you. And thank you all again. Uh, I'm going to go back to my favorite American humorist, Mark Twain. And I'm going to say that, you know, Mark Twain famously told us that it's often easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And I am here to tell you with my friend, uh, Dr. Galbraith, we have been fooled. And you, they are trying to fool you tonight. And the American people are often fooled into getting confused about government deficits. The word itself sounds like a problem. You hear someone say the government's budget is in deficit. It almost you know, on the surface uh, presents as a problem. And what we've tried to do here tonight is to cast a different light on this thing that we call the deficit, to remind you that on the other side of the government's deficit lies a financial surplus for someone. Who gets it and for what purpose? Those are important questions. The CARES Act that I brought up a couple of times already tonight was an example of a government using its deficit to send Uh, unemployed workers, an extra $600 a week to help keep them whole, to send a $1,200 check to most Americans in the pandemic to help out with costs, um, to help small businesses keep their workers on payroll and cover expenses. That's an example of government using the deficit to deliver a A financial leg up for struggling people. Another example of using deficits was the tax cuts that Republicans passed in 2017, a roughly $2 trillion addition to deficits that delivered a financial windfall to the people in our society who least need the help. So as a reminder, every deficit is good for someone. The question is for whom and for what. Right now, the last thing we need to do turn on government deficits, to be afraid of them, to begin to worry about them, because if we do that, our lawmakers in Washington are going to pull back. They're going to refuse to provide the fiscal support that our economy desperately needs, and that's going to hurt all of us. So I'm asking you not to worry about the deficit, not to get fooled, and to vote for the movement.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie Kelton. Our next closing statement is against the resolution, and it comes from Todd Buckholtz. Todd.
2: Well, thank you. And and thank you so much for giving us the opportunity today uh, and the opportunity to, to speak with our distinguished colleagues. But I have to be honest, modern monetary theory, which advocates larger deficits and printing of money almost in all cases, is modern in the sense a Jackson Pollock painting is modern. It's colorful. It's hypnotic. But it's a mess. And it can do damage. Let me give you a, and I understand the impetus for us. I understand the frustration. I'll tell you, the the other day I was driving to a friend's house with mask, with my daughter. I hadn't been to the neighborhood before and there was a roadblock. And uh, my daughter said, let me turn on Google Maps. And I said, no, I don't need Google Maps. I'll find a way to do it. I know how to, I'll figure out how to get there. And so we're driving around and snaking through the community and I'm lost. And Google Maps is now telling me, make a U-turn at the next intersection. But I'm not going to listen because I think I know better. And Google Maps is again telling me, make a U-turn at the next intersection. And Google Maps has the map. It has the evidence. It has the experience. What do I have? I just have the moral superiority that I know better. Well, I'm afraid what this debate comes down to is not evidence, because we've talked throughout history, we've talked throughout continents, we've talked throughout eras, we've talked about democratic administrations, republic administrations, and there's absolutely no evidence that modern monetary theory would have raised the standard of living, more likely it would have depleted and possibly destroyed the standard of living of countries that adopted it. So, Winston Churchill purportedly once said, you can always depend on the Yanks to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other opportunity. Well, we're looking at lots of different options, including MMT, but it is better to do the right thing and to respect the debts and deficits and to understand that it is not necessarily our standard of living, but our children and grandchildren. It
3: is what is at stake. Thank you, Todd Belkholz. Our third in the lineup in closing statements, James Galbraith. James.
4: Thanks very much. Listen, to worry is human. To worry unnecessarily is neurotic. We have plenty of things to worry about. And the issue that divides Professor Kelton and myself from our opponents isn't really deficits or national debt. The issue that divides us is whether we have the capacity to address the important problems that actually face us, whether we have the capacity to stabilize our economy in the face of a pandemic and to deal with the public health challenges, whether we have the capacity to reduce unemployment, whether we can cope with climate change, whether we can address inequality and the legacies of racial divide in in our countries. These are the issues that are in front of us. Our opponents say, no, we can't do that. There are mysterious reasons of high finance why this is impossible. Uh, to quote John Maynard Keynes from another epic, Abra would rise, cadabra would come down. Uh, but this is not the way the world actually is. We have seen, as I've said many times so far in this debate, from this year's experience, from the experience of the past four years, from the experience of the past 40 years, that yes, we can address these problems if we have the will and the organization, the capacity and the determination to do them. We can't do it if we say, oh, no, there's some mysterious financial reason why we can't. That's our opponent's position. But their position is really that they don't want to address these problems. We do. And we say, once again, if we can actually achieve this, we can afford it. Finance is a bookkeeping matter for our countries. It is a matter that's important, but it is not a constraint. And people should stop worrying about things that are not important so that they can focus their will and the attention on things that truly are.
3: Thank you. Thank you, James Galbraith. And Otmar Ising, you get the last word in this debate. You are arguing against the resolution. Stop worrying about national deficits. Your closing statement begins now.
5: Thank you. Not worrying about public deficits functions as a permit to unlimited public spending. Kornai has demonstrated that the ineffectiveness and, finally, collapse of the Soviet economic system were due to the soft budget constraints on companies. The same is true for public finance. Without constraints, public spending will run out of control. There are always so many socially beneficial projects that previously lacked the funding to be realized. Against the background of centuries of inflationary episodes, a renowned German economist once remarked, expecting public politicians to resist the temptation of free public spending is like expecting a dog to sit disciplined before a box of sausages. The cemetery of defunct currencies housed innumerable tombs. Throughout the long history of humankind, all of them were ruined by excessive public spending, be it by kings, dictators, or parliaments. The proposal to ignore public deficits and debt is pure populism, promising a land of milk and honey, the surest way to undermine and ultimately destroy the value of currencies.
3: Thank you, Ottomar Isingh. And that concludes round three of this intelligence Squared US debate, and it concludes our arguments. It's now time for you, our audience, to tell us who you felt was most persuasive. We're going to ask you to do your second vote. And I want to remind you, it's the side that sways the most votes between the first and the second vote that will be declared our winner. All right, it's all in now. I have the final results. Once again, remember, it's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winner. Here's how it went. On the resolution, stop worrying about national deficits. Before the debate, and polling our live audience, 55% were in agreement with the resolution, 29% were against, and 16% were undecided. Those are the first results. Again, it's going to be the difference between the first and second that determines our winner. On the second vote, it went like this. The resolution stopped worrying about national deficits. Their first vote was 55%. Their second vote was 73%. They pulled up 18 percentage points That's going to be the number to beat. Let's see the team against the resolution. Their first vote was 29%. Their second vote went down to 24%. It means this debate goes to the team arguing for the resolution. Stop worrying about national deficits. Our congratulations to that team, but our congratulations to all four of you for taking part in this debate and doing so with such civility and intelligence. Those are our hallmarks. Congratulations to all of you. Thanks to everyone who took part. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this special episode of That's Debatable, presented in partnership with Bloomberg Media and sponsored by IBM. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Crystal Hawes and Damon Whittemore are our radio producers. Robert Rosenkrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan.